0: Convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash gold. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. The Peter Schiff Show. U.S. stocks finished a down week on an up note, Uh, but the gains were not that large today. But of course, they were very big for the month of June. In fact, the Dow Jones just had its best June since 1938. That was during the Great Depression. S and P. Not as uh, big a record. You only have to go back to 1955 to find a June where the S&P did better than June 2019. So these are big moves up. Uh, Percentage-wise, though, I think it's about 7% approximately, maybe a little less, not really uh, sure, but close to 7% uh, for the month of June. Now, the price of gold was up 8% during the month of June. So in other words... While the price of stocks went up in terms of paper money, dollars, in terms of real money, gold, stocks actually lost value during the month. Now, the first half of the year also comes to an end today, as does the second quarter. And this is the best first half of a year in 22 years. The S&P was up about 17.5% or so. The Dow about 14%. I don't think I'm counting dividends. I'm just talking about the appreciation. So the total return will be a little bit better when you throw in the meager dividends that you can collect on U.S. stocks. NASDAQ was up about 20 percent, not much in the way of dividends there. And uh, Russell 2000, I think, up about 9 percent. This is on the first half of the year. And I'm sure you're going to hear a lot or read a lot of tweets from Donald Trump about how great the stock market is in 2019 how great the month of June is and why we should thank him for this spectacular performance in the stock market. But the only reason that the market has done so well this year is because it got destroyed in the fourth quarter of last year. Remember, we had the worst December since uh, the Great Depression as well. And in fact, if you want to go back to the fourth quarter of last year and look at what is the Dow up over the last three quarters, right? Not just this year, but include the fourth quarter of last year. The Dow is only up one half of a percent. That's it, right? Now, again, if you throw in the dividends, you know, you can throw in a couple of percent on top of that, two to three percent for dividend yield. Uh, S&P is up about one percent, so a little bit better. Uh, and the Nasdaq is up about a half a percent. That's it. That's the entire gain. And then if you look at some other indexes, the Dow transports are actually down 9% over the last three quarters and the Russell 2000 is down 8% over the last three quarters. So there you get a much better picture of what's actually going on in the US stock market than if you just focus on what's happened in 2019 and ignore what happened at the end of 2018. Now, if you really want to put it in perspective, look at the price of gold. The price of gold since the end of the third quarter last year. So over the last three quarters, the price of gold is up 18%. That is a huge move in the price of gold during that period of time. Now, I think that in the future we could see even bigger moves than what we've just seen. But that puts the rise in the Dow in perspective because it's not the Dow that's going up, right? Gold's gone up. So in gold terms, the Dow has lost value. But the reason that you've seen this is because of the Fed, right? The Fed has done a complete 180 on monetary policy. And that is what has driven what I believe is a bear market rally in the U.S. stock market. And of course, if you have been invested in foreign markets, which is what we've been doing, right, at Europe Pacific Capital, all of our accounts, if you go back over the last three quarters, we have substantially outperformed the S&P, the Dow, the NASDAQ. Uh, by investing in international stocks. You know, the the dollar has only dropped a little bit. I think the dollar index, even on the month, is down about uh, 1.5%. But it, it's not the, the weak dollar that is the reason that you've had foreign stocks outperforming. You know, even if you factor out the, the currency, foreign stocks have done better than U.S. stocks over that nine-month period. Now, that hasn't been the case for the last several years. I mean, clearly... Up until the last nine months, investors did better in U.S. stocks than they did in the types of stocks that I've been investing in, in foreign stocks. Uh, But that's all changed, I believe. I think the last nine months, the last three quarters, are far more indicative of what's going to happen over the next several years, in fact, over the next decade, than what happened in the past when investors were delusional and operating under the false premise that everything was great, that the Fed could simply unwind its uh, stimulus and normalize interest rates and shrink its balance sheet. And that the U.S. economy was going uh, to continue to, to boom, none of that was true. All that was a fantasy. And as reality replaces that fantasy, U.S. stocks are going to have a very, very tough time. And the dollar is going to have even a tougher time. I mean, look at some of the economic data again that came out this week, we got bad data in general. The Atlanta Fed ended up uh, moving its estimate for Q2 GDP now down to 1.5%. Uh, and you know we had what, 3.1% was the GDP for Q1. So if we're down to 1.5%, that's a halving of GDP growth, which is a pretty sharp contraction. I still think that we could end up south of 1%. We could have a zero handle On Q2 GDP, some of the uh, weaker numbers that we got during the week on Wednesday, we got May durable goods and the consensus was for a 0.1% decline relative to the 2.1% decline that we had in April. Well, we ended up revising the April decline into a bigger decline. It went to down 2.8, but then for May, we dropped one3 so a bigger drop than was expected. I think that was the biggest drop in three years on durable goods. The trade deficit in goods also reported on Wednesday. They were looking for $71.5 billion. Instead, the deficit swelled to $74.6 billion. So a bigger deficit. Remember, Trump is talking about how the trade war is supposed to reduce our trade deficit. Instead, the trade deficits are increasing, right? The opposite of what Donald Trump promised uh, is what he's actually delivering. But probably the the worst number we got for the week or the weakest number was the Chicago PMI for June. Now, last month we had 54.2 in that number. And the consensus was for a slight decline to 53.6. And we ended up getting 49.7. Now, the last time the PMI, the Chicago PMI, was in contraction mode. And anything below 50 indicates contraction and is something that you would expect in a recession. The last time we got that number south of 50 was in December 2015. So here you have Donald Trump talking about how we have the greatest economy in history. And we just printed... A, a negative or a contraction number for Chicago PMI for the first time since 2015 when Barack Obama was still president and the economy was a disaster, right? According to Trump, the worst economy ever. Now we have the best economy ever. Yet the Chicago PMI is back in contraction indicating that the economy is either already in or headed to a recession. You know, we got, I forgot, we got this Kansas City uh, Manufacturing Index. That came out yesterday. And that was supposed to be a three, which was a slight decline from the prior month's four. We ended up with a zero on the Kansas City Fed manufacturing. So, I mean, all the data that we're getting on manufacturing in particular has been very, very weak. And, of course, manufacturing is the industry that Donald Trump promised to revive. We were going to have a manufacturing renaissance. In fact, every time I hear Donald Trump talking about the economy, he's talking about the boom in manufacturing how all these manufacturing jobs were coming back to the United States. Yet none of that is true. I mean, if manufacturing was booming, these manufacturing numbers would be going north instead of south. So all the actual data that we're getting is indicating that the economy is weakening, which is the only thing that is powering the stock market rally because the stock market is preparing for a new injection of monetary stimulus. The Fed is going to be cutting interest rates next month. And I think the rate cuts are going to be followed by more quantitative easing. I mean, I guess first they have to end quantitative tightening. I mean, they're still slowly shrinking uh, their bloated balance sheet. So that's going to stop. And then they're going to start blowing it back up again. And that is what the markets are anticipating. And that is what is behind uh, the rally. But as I've been saying on this podcast, I don't think it's going to work this time. I don't think it's enough. I mean, the markets are not going to be surprised. The markets are fully discounting. Everybody is expecting uh, rates to be cut, and they're expecting the Fed to do QE if need be. Remember, when it happened last time, I mean, I don't think anybody expected the Fed to take rates to zero. I mean, we had never been there before, uh, and nobody certainly expected Uh, quantitative easing. And after they did QE1, remember, people thought it was over, but then we got two and three. Uh, So the markets, you know, they were surprised by that. Now, the markets are anticipating it. They're practically begging for it. But when they get what they want, I don't think it's going to work because I think it'll be more of a buy the rumor, sell the fact. And again, because I think that when the Fed goes back to the monetary well, Uh, that it's not going to have the same reaction in the long bond market. I think long-term interest rates are going to rise uh, despite the Fed's efforts to suppress them. I think consumer prices are going to rise rather sharply, uh, and that is going to confound the Fed. It's going to worsen the severity of the coming recession, and it's going to be particularly bad for the U.S. stock market. But of course, one of the worst things that could possibly happen to the U.S. stock market is that we get one of these 20 Democratic candidates who participated in, I guess we call them debates, but really nothing gets debated. Uh, But we had these uh, debates on uh, NBC, MSNBC. And if one of those clowns ends up in the White House, (laughs) look out. I mean, I don't see how the stock market can't be anticipating that possibility. I mean, at some point they will. And in fact... That may be the best weapon that Trump has uh, in his arsenal to potentially get reelected. Because the stock market is going to tank at some point, right? And if the polls show that um, the Democrat nominee is winning or, you know, Trump is falling in the polls, right, and the stock market is tanking, and of course, if the economy is rolling over Trump can easily claim that the reason the market is going down, the reason the economy is headed for in recession is because the polls are indicating that he is going to lose and that the markets are now anticipating a Democratic president. And that's why they're going down, right? Because they're worried about losing Trump. Because if Trump is so great for the markets and so great for the economy, but he's not going to get reelected, if instead we're going to have a Democrat? Remember, Trump has already said that if it wasn't for him, if Hillary Clinton had been elected, we would be in a depression and the stock market would be like half of what it is now, maybe lower, right? It would have been a complete disaster. I mean, according to Trump, but for him, right, everything would have collapsed. I mean, he's the only thing standing in the way of uh, between America and you know economic Armageddon is Donald Trump. So if it looks like Donald Trump is not going to get reelected, And the stock market is tanking and the economy is, you know, in recession. Well, the easy thing for Trump to say is, you see, this is what happens. Look, the the markets are simply anticipating that I'm not going to be here uh, in a year and a half or a year. And if you want your bull market back, if you want a strong economy back, you had better vote for me. You had, you know, the markets had better be disappointed or surprised rather in the fact that uh, Trump ends up winning. Now, of course, you know, he could talk about the fact that the polls got it wrong last time, right? And, you know, I think the polls got it wrong last time uh, because I think a lot of people who uh, were going to vote for Trump were embarrassed to admit it. And I also think there are a lot of people that thought, what the hell, let's throw a monkey wrench in the system. Let's just, uh, you know, uh, elect Donald Trump and see what happens. Well, they elected Donald Trump and they saw what happened. Nothing, right? I mean, nothing has changed uh, from the perspective of, uh, you know, the phony economy. I mean, it's exactly the way it was. And I don't think the people who were embarrassed to vote for Trump the last time would be embarrassed because after all, now he's the sitting president. I mean, when the poll was coming out before, people probably thought, I don't want to admit I'm voting for Trump. I mean, that's crazy because who'd vote for Trump, right? Well, once he's the president, I mean, obviously a lot of people did vote for him. So I think that Trump supporters are not as embarrassed about the fact that they support Trump Uh, as as they were in the past when they didn't realize that there were so many other Trump supporters out there. So I think the polls are going to be uh, much more reliable this time than they were last time. I don't think that effect is going to repeat itself. So if Trump is way down in the polls, then he's probably going to lose, right? But what Trump will be able to say is, you see, this is what's going to happen. This is just an indication of how bad it's going to be if I'm not reelected, so you better vote for me. Now, I don't know if that's gonna work. I mean, I think it's probably not gonna work, but it might be his best shot, right, at trying to blame uh, the recession and blame the stock market on the fear that he's going to lose. And the market should be pricing this in because there is a high probability that Trump is going to lose and that we are going to have one of those clowns as president And we're going to have a sympathetic Congress. And of course, if you attribute any of the stock market gain that we have today to the corporate tax cuts, well, say goodbye to those. I mean, what's the odds that a Democratic president doesn't put through a corporate tax hike? I mean, if you listen to a lot of these uh, these candidates, I mean, corporations are villains, right? They're evil. I mean what the democrats are selling is that whatever problems you have are the result of greedy, evil, horrible corporations, right? And we need government to rein them in. These these monopolies, they're gouging you, they're spying on you, they're they're underpaying you, they're polluting your environment, and they're responsible for global warming. I mean, the corporations are the bad guys. And the politicians are the saviors, right? They're going to save us from these horrible uh, creatures. So obviously, they are going to be raising taxes significantly on corporations. And not only that, they're going to be raising taxes on people who invest in corporations, right? The the, the rich, right? Everybody wants to roll back the Trump tax cuts, but that's nothing because Trump didn't actually cut taxes too much on individuals. Uh, those are small. So what they really want to do is jack taxes way up 50%, 60%, 70% on investors. So all of this is going to be very bad for the U.S. stock market. And at some point, the market is going to start discounting that. But it's not just higher taxes uh, that are going to crush After tax corporate earnings, it's going to be the severity of this next recession, which is going to be made much more severe by the social programs that uh, the Democrats want to enact, right? And, And the way they are going to pay for them, because it's not really going to be higher taxes on the rich, right? It is going to be inflation. Of course, you know, they're talking about that. Elizabeth Warren, she's got her wealth tax that she wants to put on there and of course you know I already did a podcast about this I forget which one but I went over all of the reasons why the wealth tax is unconstitutional and it is I mean it's clearly unconstitutional uh, because a tax on wealth is a direct tax and it needs to be apportioned right just like the income tax was a direct tax on income and the Supreme Court said it needs to be apportioned that's why the 16th Amendment came around so that they could get around that constitutional restriction. The 16th Amendment reads that Congress shall be able to lay a a, a tax on income without regard for uh, apportionment, Uh, but an income tax is not a wealth tax. Income is different than wealth, right? You could have a lot of wealth and not have any income, right? If I own a piece of property, unless I collect rental income, even if that property is worth $100 million dollars, If I don't collect any rental income, then I have no income on the property. So a wealth tax ignores the income and just goes and taxes the property itself. But the 16th Amendment doesn't authorize a tax on land or tax on uh, stocks or tax on uh, personal property like paintings or, you know, or, or rare cars. It's income. So if I own a painting, the only way the government can tax it through the income tax is if I, 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 I lease it out to somebody. If I generate income off that painting, then they're allowed to tax the income uh, without apportioning it, but they can't tax the painting itself. So if the government does want to lay a wealth tax, they're going to have to amend the constitution, just like they amended the constitution to collect the income tax. But hopefully that does not happen. Because remember, or nobody really remembers, you got to consult your history books, but the driving force behind the effort for the income tax was to soak the rich. It was all about taxing the rich and that the benefits were going to go to the middle class because we were going to be able to lower taxes on the middle class, right? The middle class was paying tariffs. And so the idea was, hey, let's have an income tax on rich people and then we can cut the tariffs. That the middle class were paying. And the only thing that stood between that was the Constitution. And then that's why they got an amendment. But of course, no sooner did they amend the Constitution than they started jacking up the rates. And of course, now the middle class is the one getting soaked, right? They're drowning in the income tax. There's far more water being poured on the middle class than was ever contemplated, uh, was going to be dribbled out on the rich. Well, I have a feeling that if we amend the Constitution to allow a wealth tax, or if we don't amend it, and these uh, justices just allow it right, as some kind of perversion, because pretty much almost anything the government wants to do these days is held to be constitutional, even though it's clearly not. But whatever, if we end up getting a wealth tax, either because we do it right by amending the Constitution... Or we do it wrong by ignoring the Constitution and just enact it anyway, right? And and and, and the courts allow it. If we end up with a wealth tax, yes, it's gonna start off on the rich, right? Just like the income tax started off as a very small tax, one or two percent tax on the Rockefellers, on the Carnegies, on the Vanderbelts, right? Just like that, the wealth tax is gonna start out. Yes, 2% on anything above 50 million, and then 3% above a billion, whatever it is, that's just where it starts. That's the camel's nose under the tent. But you know what? There's not a lot of wealth up there to tax. And once they have the mechanism for a wealth tax in there, the next thing they start doing is lowering the bar, right? So it goes from 50 million to 25 million to 10 million to 5 million. And the rate goes up from 2% to 4% to 5%, right? This is going to be an escalating. Uh, scale. And the problem is we're going to have so much inflation over the next decade, over the next couple of decades, that a lot of people are going to see their wealth increase in price, in nominal value. So a lot of people may think, oh, $50 Fifty million million, Oh, oh, I'm never going to make it into $50 million, so I don't have to worry about that tax. Well, believe me, if we have enough inflation, there's going to be a lot of people who have $50 million who don't have anywhere near $50 million today, but it doesn't mean that they're going to be rich because if the cost of living goes up tenfold or twentyfold and your net worth goes up by less than that, then even though your net worth is a bigger number, you're poorer, but you end up getting hit By the wealth tax right back in the olden days when we had a lot of uh, nominal inflation and a lot of tax brackets we don't have nearly as many tax brackets now as we had in the 60s and the 70s but when there was a lot of inflation back then a lot of people kept getting pushed into higher and higher brackets simply because of inflation and they called it bracket creep that was a name for it where you ended up having to pay a higher income tax rate because you kept going into a higher bracket but all your income was doing was keeping pace with the cost of living. So you weren't really earning more in real terms, but your nominal paycheck was going up, but the brackets were skewed. As you had a bigger check, the percentage that you paid was higher and higher. So people were actually seeing a net reduction in their after-tax income because of inflation. That is what's going to happen to the wealth tax because your wealth is an illusion because what they end up taxing is inflation, not real Real wealth, and then the other problem with this wealth tax, uh, and is that you got to pay it every year, over and over again. So even if it's two percent, it's two percent, and then two percent again, and then two percent again. So after five years, if you pay two percent a year, that's ten percent of your wealth. I mean, if your wealth is not generating any income, I mean, you've just lost ten percent of it. I mean, where are you going to get the money to pay the wealth tax? You have to gradually dissipate your wealth. You have to start selling off not income-producing assets. So you can pay the tax. Obviously, it's even more if it's 3% that, of course, that's just the opening bid. Who knows how high it's going to go? And of course, you know, this requires intense audits because it's much easier to audit your income because income is just a number, right? You could tell, you know, here's my income. Here's my expenses, right? This is what I have. But when you're talking about your wealth, how do you know what your wealth is worth? I mean, obviously, if you have publicly traded assets, you know what that's worth, right? Because you have a, a a statement because you have a value every day because there's a market. But what's your house worth? I mean, you have to get an appraisal, right? I mean, you just can't guess. So that means you have to appraise all your real estate every year. How much does that cost? And then, you know, somebody might challenge that maybe you need two or three appraisals and you take the average. I don't know. But that's a house. That's kind of easy to value a house because you can have comparable sales. But what about a business? What if you have a, a minority interest in a private business, right? What's that worth? Who do you? I mean, ha, I mean, I mean, and how long does it take to do the valuation of a of a of a of a private business, especially a minority stake, right? So you're you're talking about complicated uh, analysis that are going to have to be done on a yearly basis. So as much as it costs people to comply with the income tax and to hire accountants to do that, it's going to cost a fortune to comply with the wealth tax. Um, and then, you know, and even other things that you own, right, if you own uh, a painting, right, or you own, again, a rare car or coll- you have a baseball card collection, I mean, you've got to uh, appraise that thing every single year because it's a brand new tax. You can't just say, well, this is what it was worth last year. No, it's another year. It's, it's, it changes in value. So this is gonna be a compliance nightmare if they actually get this thing through. Now, of course, if they don't get it through, they're just gonna jack up the income tax and and get the rich the old fashioned way, right? Through a higher tax bracket, right? They'll do that. But either way, whatever it is, if they're taxing wealth, because remember, if they're taxing your stock, right? And you own a lot of stock and you get a wealth tax, you have to sell that stock to pay the wealth tax, you know, unless it's paying a high enough dividend, right? But let's say your wealth, you own a stock, and it's paying 2% a year in dividends, right? Well, if you have a 2% wealth tax, well, you have to pay 100% of your dividend income in tax. That's like having an, inc- an income tax of 100% of your income because you need 100% of your income just to pay the tax. But what if you own one of these stocks that doesn't pay any dividends, right? Well, then you have to sell 2% of your holdings every year or 3%, depending on, you know, if you're one of these really big guys, you, own, you have billions in the stock market, you know, you've got to sell a lot of stock just to, uh, just to cover that, that tax. So a lot of selling of assets could be the result of the wealth tax. So all this stuff is negative for the stock market, but the stock market thus far uh, is oblivious to it, but this is not going to uh, continue. At some point, people are going to wake up to the reality that one of these clowns is going to be president. You know, I often use the definition, it was um, H.L. Mencken, who I think he first described an election As being an advanced auction on the sale of stolen goods. And I think that that definition of an election is is no better evidence than by these Democratic debates. Because if you basically listen to what these guys said, it all boils down to the fact that uh, Democrats want to be president so they can steal stuff uh, from rich people and give it to the people who vote for them. I mean, that's basically, that's the bottom line when you when you strip it all away, that's what they're advocating. And it's not just that they want to give free stuff to the people who are voting for them. They want to give free stuff to people who don't vote for them. They want to give free stuff to people who cross the border illegally. In fact, I think every one of these guys was asked in the first debate if they thought there should be a penalty, any kind of penalty, for illegally crossing the border and everybody raised their hand that there should be no penalty no penalty for crossing the border illegally now of course in order for a law to be a law right there needs to be a penalty for violating it right if there's no penalty for violating a the law then basically there's no law right it's cuz it's the penalty that that gives enforcement to the law right i mean if there was a a law that said all right, you know, you know, you can't, you can't drive past a speed limit of sixty-five miles an hour, but there was no penalty for driving faster than sixty-five miles an hour. You you couldn't get a ticket, a cop couldn't pull you over. Well then, well, there's no real law, right? You, you need to have some type of penalty. There needs to be a fine or something to create the law. You just can't have a law. And have no consequences for violating it because then it's like there's no law at all. So if you think that there should be no penalties for crossing the border, well, then there's no border. I mean, you can't even have a law if there's no consequences for violating it. So basically what all the Democratic candidates are in favor of is just completely open borders. They just want anybody to be able to cross over the border on their own terms and that's it. Which is ridiculous. I mean, look, I am in favor of making it easier for people to immigrate to the United States. Of course, I want to turn off all the welfare magnets first. But the Democrats, they want to make the welfare magnets more powerful. And then they want to make it even easier for people to be attracted to those magnets. Because the crazy thing is, not only do they want to just eliminate all the laws against crossing the border, right? Anybody from anywhere in the world could just come, come into America, no questions asked, right? And there's no nothing, just come on over. But then on the other debate, I think it was the last night's debate, every one of the uh, Democratic candidates wants the socialized medicine, the free medical care that they are going to give everybody, right? by stealing from the rich, right? Everybody's going to get free medical care, including all the people that are here illegally. So not only do these guys want to say that there's no more no longer a border i mean there's a border but anybody can cross it right so anybody can come to america there's no penalty for coming you know you don't have to follow whatever rules we set up for immigration just come on in because nothing will happen to you if you don't follow the rules and by the way once you get here if, you're, if you get sick, we'll take care of you. In fact, if you're already sick, just come on over the border and get all your free health care. I mean, this is what these guys are advocating. Who is going to pay for this? Clearly, uh, the rich don't have the money to pay for it. And in fact, some of the couple of these candidates, not all of them, Elizabeth Warren, I think was one, maybe Bernie Sanders, I forget. They actually want to outlaw private insurance. Right. The government wants to make it illegal or some of these guys want to, want the government to make it illegal for anybody to have private insurance. Like the only insurance that you can have is the insurance that comes from the government. Now, I mean, think about that. I mean, think about a loss of individual liberty, individual freedom, basically saying that the only health care that you can get is what you're required to have by the government. And right? I mean, for a while, I mean, that's how it was with the mail, right? If you wanted to send a letter, you know, you had to use the post office. That was it, right? Because if anybody else tried to deliver the mail, they would shut them down because it's illegal to compete with the post office until they allowed, you know, UPS or then Federal Express. They eventually, you know, certain types of delivery were exempted and now people had a choice and then, then things got a lot better because now you could, you could choose a carrier. But basically, the government wants to take the post office model and apply it uh, to healthcare. care. Basically, you got to get your health insurance from the government, and that's it. And we're going to make it illegal for you to get it anyplace else, which, of course, would be a complete disaster if that were to happen. But the reason that they would be in favor of that is because they know that if people have a choice between a government system and a private system, they're going to choose the private system. So the way that you prevent that from happening is make that illegal. So the only way people can have insurance... is to do it it through the government. Now, maybe you'll still be able to get insurance in another country. Maybe you'll still be able to go to Switzerland or Japan and buy a private health insurance policy over there, although it's probably going to be illegal for those countries to sell it to you or market it to you. Maybe it's not illegal if you go over there. I don't know how they're going to enforce it. But this is the disaster that is coming. This is big government, socialism, and there is a high probability that this is what we're going to get especially if the economy is in a recession, which it very well could be. The stock market is in a bear market, which is pretty likely. And Trump is not able to scare the hell out of the electorate into believing that the only reason these bad things are happening is because people are afraid of the Democrats winning. I mean, right now, they're clearly not afraid. They should be. And the other problem is when the Fed goes back to quantitative easing and 0% interest rates, not only is it not going to work next time because of the massive amount that would be required would produce an overdose, but because we are going to get a massive increase in the size of government at the same time when what we really need is a huge contraction in the size of government. Government is the problem. Government is a gigantic burden on this economy. And what we need is to lighten that burden, right? We need to reduce the size of government and the resources that it drains from the private sector so that we can build a productive economy again. But just when we need government to get smaller, it's going to get much bigger. And it is going to fund itself mainly through inflation. It's not going to be taxes on the rich. Yes, we're going to have taxes on the rich, but that means we're going to have fewer rich people. And there's going to be less investment and and, and fewer employment. So who knows? They may even collect lower tax revenues from the rich, even though the tax rates on the rich have gone way up. But the vast majority of this is going to come from the, the Fed. It's going to come from printing press. And basically, we've already laid the foundation that there's nothing wrong with printing money. There's nothing wrong with running deficits. After all, we ran big deficits under Obama. We ran bigger deficits under Trump. We had QE1, QE2, QE3. We printed all this money and it was fine for Wall Street. It was fine to print money to bail out the banks. So why can't we print money to bail out the students? And to bail out sick people and to bail out the unemployed and to do all these things that we want to do, right? Why can't we print money when it's for the people? Why can't we print money for the middle class if we can print it for the rich? If we can print it for the corporations and the banks and the oil companies, right? We can print it for uh, everybody else, right? And that's what's going to happen. We've already set this lousy precedent under both Democrats and Republicans. Remember, it started under Bush. The big money printing, right, the bailout that started while Bush was still president. So if it was good for those presidents, it's going to be good for the socialist president that we have next. And so things things couldn't be worse uh, as far as uh, how the future looks over the next six years. Hopefully, we'll have an opportunity to do something about this uh, in 2024. But maybe that could just be, you know, uh, me just being overly optimistic on a very very negative situation, so I think the the performance that we've seen in foreign markets, in in gold, in you know gold stocks. I think gold stocks on the month, the GDX was up 18 percent or so in the month of June, uh, which is more than double the gains of the Dow and the S and P. But again, this is just getting started. This is just the beginning. If everything plays out the way I believe it will, and I'm I'm sure that I'm right about this. Now, it's starting a lot later than I thought, right? If you asked me back in 2005, 2006, when I was writing Crash Proof, where I thought we would be in 2019, it's not where we are. Back then, I thought that the chickens would come home to roost far sooner than 2019. I mean, I didn't have a date in mind. I didn't know. But if you would have said, hey, you know, what about 2019? I would have said the odds that we make it that far you know, without a dollar crisis uh, would be slim. But we made it this far. But we don't have another 10, 15 years. I mean, we are far closer to the tipping point now. And so everybody needs to be prepared. If you're not already prepared, I mean, obviously, if you've been following my advice, you're already where you need to be. But a lot of my clients haven't necessarily gone all in on the strategy. And that may have served them well uh, during the bubble when the dollar was strengthening and people were still operating under a delusion But that's not going to work well in the future as the delusion fades and the dollar collapses. So if you've only had a partial allocation to the foreign strategy and to the gold stocks and things like that, now is the time to up your allocation. If you haven't allocated any money at all, if you're still all in the U.S. stock market, well, now is a great time uh, to to cash out of U.S. stocks, U.S. bonds, U.S. dollars, and invest those assets internationally. Uh, Now that we've clearly turned the corner... Right? And we have gone out of the tunnel. I mean, I had seen the light at the end of the tunnel a while ago, and that light turned out to be the end of the tunnel. It wasn't an oncoming train like so many people thought it might have been. So we're out of the tunnel and we can see clearly what's ahead, and it's pretty obvious at this point what we need to do. I want to finish up the podcast though by updating everybody on what's been going on with Bitcoin, because when I when I recorded my last podcast, Bitcoin Uh, had just taken out, I think, 11,600 or so as I was recording, which at that point was the high move of this rally in in Bitcoin. And of course, you know, as gold was going up, right, Bitcoin was stealing all the thunder. I mean, and even though gold closed above uh, 1,400 this week for the first time probably in six years, uh, we were still up about 12 bucks. In fact, we would have had a bigger gain today. But, uh, you know, Donald Trump kind of reamed the rally early this morning by indicating that he was going to have a meeting uh, with Chairman Chi and he was optimistic that it was going to go well. And I don't know why the markets react, but as soon as that came out, uh, you know, gold lost almost all of its gains or probably all of its gains on the day, uh, but it still managed uh, a slightly positive close for the day, but a nice uh, positive close on the week. But it would have been bigger had the markets not bought in uh, to that nonsense again. I mean, I don't know how many times you can cry wolf when it comes to a trade deal and the villagers keep uh, keep coming running. But nevertheless, whatever progress gold has managed to make, for a lot of people at least, is insignificant because it doesn't compare with the gains uh, of Bitcoin, which is, which is true. Obviously, uh, Bitcoin went up a lot more than gold. I mean, in fact, if you had the winning lottery ticket, well, then those gains uh, would have been better than gold too. Uh, but that doesn't mean that gold and Bitcoin... the same in fact you know just because gold and bitcoin happen to be going up it doesn't mean they're going up for the same reasons a lot of people are jumping to that false conclusion but look stocks are going up you know bonds went up i mean a lot of stuff is going up right and it doesn't mean that it's going up for the same reason as gold but of course bitcoin uh proponents want to pretend that that's why bitcoin is going up because they want to fool people into believing uh, that uh, Bitcoin is digital gold when Bitcoin is nothing like gold. It is trying to be gold. It is pretending to be gold, but it fails miserably at being gold. But you know, don't uh, don't try explaining that uh, to somebody who drunk the Kool Aid. But anyway, as I was recording the podcast on uh, Tuesday, we were at eleven thousand six hundred, and by Wednesday we had gotten close to fourteen thousand. In fact, Wednesday afternoon. Probably around three o'clock, three three thirty. Uh, Bitcoin almost got to fourteen thousand. I think it got to like thirteen thousand eight hundred and change, maybe eight fifty. I don't know exactly where it went, but it was very close. Because I was, I remember, I was watching on on Fox Business. I was watching Liz Klayman's Countdown to Closing Bell, and she was interviewing some guy. Uh, who had some kind of a diamond company where they were taking diamonds and gluing them to bars and trying to make them like gold. And I don't think this thing is going to work, whatever this guy's doing, but somehow it has some kind of crypto angle to it. And so Liz was talking about, oh, let's see if we can hit a 14,000 handle on the show. I mean, it was all, you know, it was right right there. And then within 24 hours of Bitcoin almost hitting 14,000, it was almost back down to 10,000. I think the low I saw, was about 10,200. And that entire decline, right, that was better than a 25% drop. That took place in less than 24 hours, which is another reason that Bitcoin is nothing like gold because gold does not drop by 25% in 24 hours. And in fact, 90% of that decline, right, happened in like one minute. I mean, Bitcoin, I was in a car, right, uh, leaving New York City, right, because I went into New York City for um the premiere of the bubble movie and by the way if you haven't gotten that movie you should download a copy i forget what they charge for it but it's well worth it uh and you actually should get some copies for your friends too so that they can watch the movie uh but it's uh uh dot i believe is the website to go on and to order a, a downloadable copy of the movie and in fact there's the bigger bubble which is a sequel which is coming out maybe in about a year So it's two movies, but the first one is uh, you know the kind of like uh, goes on about the about the last bubble, right? Uh, The next one is about the bubble that's about to pop. But I'm in the car uh, driving back, and I'm I I check out the price, and Bitcoin dropped from you know thirteen thousand seven hundred, you know six hundred, whatever it was, down below eleven thousand in like a minute. I mean, it just it just dropped straight down in one minute. And then, you know, then it bounced a little bit and then it eventually took out that low. uh, But that was, you know, the following day. But, you know, so the whole decline took about 24 hours or less than 24 hours. But the majority of the collapse happened in a minute. And this is what you have to ask yourself if you're in Bitcoin. I mean, if Bitcoin's price can drop by 15%, 20% in a minute or maybe a half a minute, why can't it drop by 50%? Why can't it drop by 75%? I mean, anything that can drop that much that quickly, right, has the potential to drop even more. Now, sure, right, the people in Bitcoin, they get relieved because the market comes back. The market bounces back and they're like, oh, you see, right? It's like you're getting conditioned. You're like a frog that is being boiled so that when you see these sharp declines, you don't worry about it because in the past, the market has always come back. Right? So that lulls you into a false sense of security that you can ride this out. But you can't because the last time the market goes down, it ain't coming back. Right, It's going to be down for the count. And it shows you just how vulnerable the market is. Because when the market tanks, it's probably some real money actually wants out. Because on the way up, it's all play money. I mean, who knows how real these trades are? Right, It's all spoofing. I mean, people are trading... You know, between themselves and who knows how much money is actually involved and if there's anybody really getting out. But all of a sudden, if somebody wants their money for real and they hit some of these bids, I mean, this thing could evaporate. Now, yeah, they're able to stop it. They're able to generate another rally. But I would be very cautious. As I said before on this podcast, I don't think that this rally is going to take us to a new high. I think this is an, an echo bubble. I mean, I think, I think the bubble popped you know, last year uh, or no, at the, at the end of 2017, when Bitcoin almost hit 20,000. I think that was the end of it. And, and then it collapsed and it got down to about 3,000. And now we've managed the rally. And when this rally fails, which I expect to happen below 20,000, now maybe we've already topped out, maybe just below 14,000 was the top. There's a good chance that it's over, right? And that we're going to roll over again and we are going much lower. And the next time we're going to make a new low in the price of Bitcoin. But people are just rationalizing this, how it's different. Again, you know, they're claiming that this is all institutions. I see no evidence of that. I mean, no, there is no greater adoption now on Bitcoin, right? Because you don't have more merchants accepting it than two years ago. In fact, probably fewer merchants are now involved. I mean, it was a novelty for a while. Some merchants got excited about it, but ultimately it it was nothing and they just kind of backed away from it, right? So they're they're not doing it. I mean, the, the, the Libra stuff, uh, they were able to spin that into a positive, even though it's clearly a negative. You know, one of the other negatives that is being spun into a positive, again, is the dominance, Bitcoin dominance. Because if you look now at the, uh, the price of Bitcoin relative to all the other cryptocurrencies, go to uh, a website, coinmarketcap.com, and this lists all the cryptocurrencies. Right now, There's 2,291 of these things, right? And the total market cap, as I am reading, is $345 million. And 63.2% of that number is Bitcoin. So Bitcoin represents 63.2% of the value of all the cryptocurrencies that are out there. All 2,291 cryptocurrencies 63.2% of the value is just in Bitcoin. That means the other 2,290 represent uh, the rest, right? The other 37%, approximately 36.8%. But here's the interesting thing. This number is a significant breakout above what used to be resistance. If you look at a chart of Bitcoin dominance, you can find this chart on the same page. There was some pretty big resistance at 60% from summer 2017 or fall 2017. But before the big rally in 2017, right? Because that was the big move for Bitcoin. 2017 was the banner year when everything went way up. Well, when 2017 began, Bitcoin was over 80% of the market. And by the end of the run in January of 2018, Bitcoin was down to 33% of the market. So we saw a huge growth in the market, right? So the value of Bitcoin went up, but the value of all the altcoins went up by even more. So Bitcoin was becoming more valuable, but it was becoming a smaller part of the crypto pie. And while that was happening, as Bitcoin was becoming a smaller portion of the market, All of the Bitcoiners were saying this is great news, right? Because this shows that cryptocurrencies are going more mainstream. There's wider adoptance. So there's more currency out there. And Bitcoin is always going to be, you know, the most valuable. But it's going to continue to lose uh, share as the market gets bigger and bigger and bigger, right? And so you have to have portfolios of cryptocurrencies and you can't you don't want to just own one. It was all crypto. Right. But it was all good news. Right. The fact that Bitcoin was not the only game in town anymore, that more cryptocurrencies were being created, validating the concept. And this was all good. Right. Because, of course, all news is good news. Well, now the opposite is happening. Right. Uh, Bitcoin is gaining in value relative to all the alt, alt coins. Right. So it is recovering the dominance that it lost. Now, everybody is saying this is good news too, right? This is also good news for Bitcoin because it shows that Bitcoin is the winner, that Bitcoin is digital gold, right? So in other words, they have their cake and eat it too. It doesn't matter. Whatever happens, it's good for Bitcoin. As far as I can tell, I think this is a negative sign. I think what's happening is that people who own cryptocurrencies are getting nervous and they want to own the, the safest one, right? It's like if you think of Bitcoin as the blue chip and the other cryptocurrencies are more speculative stocks, speculative names. So when you're bullish on the market, when everything is good, you don't want the real safe ones, right? You want to go out you want to buy out on the risk curve. You want, you want to get some of those NASDAQ stocks. You want to get some of those growth stocks in there. You just don't want to be in the Dow, right? You want to go further on the risk curve uh, because it's a bull market, right? So that was the attitude in 2017. People wanted to get more aggressive. Now I think people in the crypto community want to get more conservative. And so a lot of the buying of Bitcoin could be coming from people who own other cryptocurrencies who now are exchanging those cryptocurrencies for Bitcoin. So it's not new money moving into the crypto space. Right, which is kind of evidenced by you know the Google search engines, where the only reason that even the searches are up is because the price is up. So people are more interested in the price of Bitcoin going up than they are in the idea of a cryptocurrency or whatever Bitcoin's supposed to stand for. It's just the publicity surrounding the stock, the, the appreciation that piques people's interest. But if what's happening is people are trading up in quality, or at least the perception of quality, if they're getting rid of some of these other 2,000 coins, and they're buying Bitcoin, that is not a healthy sign for the cryptocurrency community. The fact that people are trying to hide out in Bitcoin as they're losing confidence in these other coins. But the reality is there's no difference fundamentally between Bitcoin and any of these other 2,000 coins. I mean, they're, they're all created out of nothing and they all have no intrinsic value. It's all about perception. It's all about branding. The reason that Bitcoin supposedly is more valuable is because it came first and it's, and it's more well-known. But so what? Who cares? That means nothing. I mean, maybe it means something uh, in the minds of the people who are buying it, but in reality, it doesn't mean anything. And eventually it won't mean anything to these individuals either. But when you are locked in a bubble, you tune out everything. I mean, nobody that owns Bitcoin wants to acknowledge that what's going on is, is a problem. You know, remember, I talked on this podcast when when Bitcoin first came out or, you know, one of the things that people used to tell me was so good about Bitcoin is there's no futures market. There's no futures contract. I mean, that's the problem with gold. You have futures markets and so they're manipulated. Right? And so that's one of the reasons that gold hasn't done better is because the big guys are using futures markets to manipulate the price of gold. And there is no futures market with Bitcoin. Therefore, Bitcoin is better than gold because you don't have to worry about manipulation on a futures market. OK, fine. Then they launch Bitcoin futures. And those same people are saying this is great news for Bitcoin. The fact that Bitcoin is going to have a futures contract shows that it's mainstream. It means institutions are moving in. It legitimizes it. It opens up the market. So in other words, not having futures was a positive thing. And then having futures was a positive thing. Basically, anything is a positive thing, which is what they're doing with Facebook and Libra. They're taking something that's negative and making it into positive, right? It doesn't matter what the news is. It's all good. Everything is positive when it comes to Bitcoin because that's your mindset, if you're in there and you believe it, and you think this is the future of money, and you've stumbled onto the, the not the fountain of youth, but the fountain of riches. You know, I saw this guy had a uh, uh, a video that he that he made on YouTube about you know how to make stupid money or how to really get rich in Bitcoin. He was supposedly giving people advice on how to get really really rich, and and basically his his advice was just try to you know keep stacking your Satoshis as as if you could stack anything. It's digital. You can't make a stack of it. But he was talking about how you can accumulate uh, all these Satoshis and it will change your life eventually. And so basically what his advice was that, okay, instead of going to Starbucks and, and buying a coffee for $5, make yourself a coffee at home and then take the money that you save and buy Bitcoin, right? And, you know, instead of eating in a restaurant at work, brown bag it and take your savings and buy Bitcoin, right? Instead of going out to the movies, stay home, watch TV and take the money that you would have put into the movies and buy Bitcoin, right? You know, you got a birthday, tell your friends, hey, give me Bitcoin as gift, right? So basically what this guy is saying is sacrifice your entire life instead of enjoying yourself and doing the things that you like, put that money into Bitcoin instead. And somehow you're going to be a zillionaire at the end of this. Basically, you're just throwing your money away, right? Instead of enjoying life and getting that Starbucks coffee and going out to the movies, you're buying a bunch of Bitcoin that are going to be worthless. But I mean, this is the mentality that people have. If we, if you only just buy these Satoshis, right? Because no one could actually, you know, most people now can't even afford a Bitcoin because Bitcoin is, you know, as I'm recording this, it's back up above 12,000, like 12,300 or something for a Bitcoin. Uh, but so most people can't even afford to buy Bitcoin. So now they got to talk about buying Satoshis, right? Because the Bitcoin is so expensive. But yeah, just keep on buying these Satoshis and you're going to be rich one day. This is all a pipe dream. But, you know, if you want, if you believe in that and you don't want your fantasy interrupted by reality, then you have to, uh, you have to tune out all the bad news or even better, pretend all the bad news is, is actually good news. Oh,